Electricity Markets for the Masses, Interview with Leonardo Mayus, Episode 16. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Leonardo Mayus, a professor at the Vleric Business School. He recently published the book, The Evolution of Electricity Market Design in Europe. First, electricity markets and understanding how they work may for some sound boring. But as you'll hear in this episode, Leonardo sees electricity markets radically changing and becoming more of a social space where people and communities participate together. This is a big change from the traditional electricity system where monopolies and national governments determined what was going to be built and how the system worked. We delve into how the EU changed from a system of national markets to an integrated market model with a European-wide regulatory structure. We touch on who the key players are and how household consumers will be more than just consumers in the future, but actually active players themselves who can benefit and help their neighbors in accessing electricity. And now for this week's episode. This week, we are speaking with Leonardo Mayus. He is the professor of strategy and director of the Energy Center at Vleric Business School in Brussels. He is also the deputy director of the Florence School of Regulation and professor at the European University Institute in Florence. He has numerous academic articles on regulation and market design. His new book just came out in 2020, The Evolution of Electricity Market Design in Europe with Edward Algar Publishing. And today we'll be asking him questions about his book and about how Europe's electricity market works and the institutions involved in developing an EU-wide electricity market. Leonardo, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you, Michael. Very happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm just uh, really, and I see that we both had books come out last year with uh, Edward Elgar. So it's uh, I, I had a wonderful time publishing with them. I, I, I'm guessing you did too. <laughs> Yeah, it was the second time. So as the first time went smoothly, uh, we continued to work together. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was really impressed by them. So that we'll, I guess give, it's good to give our publishers a, a plug. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Leonardo, um, you, you have quite a diverse, or not quite diverse, but, but a very focused, actually, background. And everything you do is focused on energy. And I'm really happy to be speaking to you about this. And I was wondering, maybe you could explain how did you get into the field that you're in? Why, why energy? Why electricity markets? What, what's so interesting for it for for you? So I bumped into energy, rolled into energy, you could say, through my uh, studies at university. I st I studied business engineering, uh, which basically means you're part of the faculty of economics and business, yeah. uh, and you get also some courses on engineering. Um, and the last year of this uh, study, we had actually a, a course on energy. Um, and it was the just renewed. And the new course was given by the three professors that at that time at the KU Leuven, where I studied, they set up an energy institute, a multidisciplinary institute. And the course was also a reflection of that. So you had somebody from mechanical engineering, from electrical engineering, and an economist. And they each gave their view on energy, which was quite fascinating. And it was my first interaction, you could say, with the topic of energy. And one of them, uh, Professor Ronnie Bellmans, the one from electrical engineering, during the course said, oh, you know, we were about 100 students. Uh, if one of you here is interested to join my research group, uh, just send me your CV and I will have a meeting with the, f the ones that are interested. So, And through that process, I became one of his uh, research uh, assistants. Uh, oh, and wow. I dis yeah, so, and, and I, I stayed in energy, right? Once you're in energy, it's hard to leave. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes. And, and why, do, why do you think that is? Because it's so fascinating. And, you know, when I, so I'm talking about around 2002, which is just a few years after this whole liberalization uh, process started. And you could, looking back on it at that time, it was fascinating, but going relatively slow. Today, it's only accelerating. So, you know, uh, the, the amount of open questions to deal with for anyone in the sector increases. And I think also the diversity of the people 
that are involved in these discussions is increasing, which makes it only more interesting and fascinating, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I started about the same time, a PhD in 2000 or so. And yeah, and, and what's interesting at that time, it was kind of, well, maybe you're coming from a slightly different approach with the mechanical engineering, but, but still, there was, it, it felt to me like it was the oil markets, the, the very traditional type of sector. And only the renewables and maybe how to integrate them in the market was being discussed and how to re re reform, especially the EU, how to, how to redo the EU energy market slightly, right? How to, how to make it more competitive, break down these barriers. That, that, that was my statement. I, but, but, um, how, how did, how, how have you seen things change over the time? Well, uh, during my PhD, I was focused on one very specific topic of electricity markets because most countries in Europe never had an electricity market. So they were all just thinking about what does, does that even mean to have an electricity market, right? In this sector that was quite, you know, stable in a way, right? You don't mess up this beautiful machine yes. <laughs> that is the electricity system. And that was then shaken up by, first of all, the thinking of what that means, a market. Um, and, and that's how, you know, the kind of topics I, I worked on uh, initially. Um, okay. Yeah, no, me too. I looked at electricity deregulation in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So from, from a, I would say, a political economic perspective, a geography perspective is what, mm -hmm. what I used. Um, so then, so, but now... Um, uh, there's been a lot of developments. I guess we're old, older guys, not as old as those professors that taught us, right? We, we can say that at least right now. Uh, but uh, why, why is it important to understand electricity markets at the European level? There's been so many changes, as we kind of outlined. And, and how, how can we begin to even understand the role that the European Union plays? Because, yeah, the traditional design was each country was in charge of their energy system. Uh, and now it's much, much uh, more integrated in the EU institutions, particularly the commission is really leading the way in market reform. So mm -hmm. how, how um, yeah, it was a general question of how to understand this or to perceive the changes over time. Yeah. So I think when indeed, as you say, eh, if you work on electricity markets, you automatically also work on European integration because electricity markets, I think, is a nice case study of where European integration has achieved really unbelievably things. You know, if I when we in 2002, if I see what we did now, it, we never thought it was possible. Uh, we would, we thought that maybe the process will never be able to reach these ambitions or it will break down because you have other files where Europe wants to achieve certain things, but is somehow blocked, right? Or, or not achieving all the ambitions while in energy is, is unbelievable. Um, what happened? Because as you said, when I started as a researcher, I was looking to the US because yes. they had already more experience and they were more advanced in electricity markets. But today, if you start as a researcher globally, I think you will look at Europe. So I think, um, you know, everything in energy and especially also electricity markets, the European level has played a real role and is also a bit of a global leader now, I think. Um, in, in uh, you know, we are the biggest electricity market in the world, first of all. And not only the scale is unprecedented across international borders, it's also uh, what we do in terms of innovation. Uh, because when I started, the US was already quite advanced on how to organize markets at wholesale level, yeah. but much less so at retail level, right? The real contact with the consumer. Uh, and that's where Europe is now doing a lot of new things, a lot of innovation, a lot of new players. Um, and, and I see that because if we organize a training on an electricity oh, yeah. market in Europe, you get interest from outside of Europe. Um, they really want to know and, and because they're also going in this direction and they want to learn from our mistakes also. Uh, we had many mistakes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, maybe, maybe my one uh, sub-question here then is how, how the breaking up of monopolies or these, these national companies and how did that occur? Because that had to be done in order to open up the residential market for competition. Uh, and, and do you think that's one of the biggest changes in, in the European electricity market was breaking up these national players like RWE, Eon, and the French ADF? 
Yeah, because they are these, they were or still are a bit, a bit these kind of national champions, right? Where, yeah. Um, yeah, and it was also, I think, clear that we were not going to break them up fully, right? We've what we call on, we've unbundled them. So we wanted um, the uh, competitive activities to be run more independently from the monopoly activities, the network. But then you still had big players. Once you've unbundled the network from the competitive activities, you still, in most countries, had only a few big players in these competitive activities of retailing, supplying energy, um, and producing it. Um, so we, we had to go to the European scale, the European market, to really have sufficient competition in this sector. Um, and what, what was the role that the Commission played uh, in, in this? Yeah, huge, huge. Mm -hmm. huh? I mean, yes. you have had uh, what I like to refer to as waves of legislation, all yes. these packages. Yes. Uh, in the book, I also discussed that they all had nicknames. So the nicknames are, are changing over time. Um, but yeah, they have been really important. Uh, without those pieces of legislation, we would have not gone anywhere, I think. Uh, yes. And this legislation, you have a section yeah, in the book in, in the naming of it, first package or the second package, third package. And A, so my question is, how, how did the, those names come about? And then what was the, what was, you, what do you think was the biggest or most, most, I would say, influential package uh, that, that's come to be uh, in retrospect? Well, in retrospect, the third package was much more ambitious than the previous two. In the, the previous two was more like telling member states, start to do something, right? but yeah. still leaving a lot of room of, for free choice at the national level. So we had markets, but they were all looked different. The third package was the first attempt really to harmonize and to create more than just a, you know, a collage of national markets with some voluntary regional initiatives. Um, but maybe the clean energy package, I would argue, is probably even more ambitious. But the impact of that we will only see over the next four or five years. So there I am guessing the impact will be maybe bigger, right? But uh -huh. as it is only one, two years old, uh, a lot of the implementation still has to happen. While for the third package from 10 years ago, you already see the implementation. Um, and, and that was that third package that... that prompted unbundling and greater competition. Exactly. And also something that is called network codes and guidelines, which is basically the nitty gritty of how these markets function. Because we've noticed that you really have to get into the very technical details to make sure that, you know, electricity can be traded uh, freely across borders. Uh, Yes. And, and actually, this is an interesting area because, yeah, this is the nitty gritty, how the market actually works. And do you think, uh, uh, actually, one of my PhD students is doing research on this, but do you, do you think that one of the, because basically this was an area for national legislation in, in the past. It was, it was, there was a lot of politics in it. And, and then the commission, we could say, transferred this authority then, or the, the authority over rules and regulations, particularly cross-border uh, markets, the um, interconnectors and how those operated. Do you, do you think that... Uh, this was like a power grab by the commission or just was it a way to more technically remove the politics and create a more technocratic governance system in the, in the electricity market? Well, first, I mean, I'm not um, an expert, but over the last few years, I've learned a bit about how European institutions function. And in the dynamic, you are indeed have the commission that can propose something, but it's only approved if the European Parliament and the European Council agree, and the Council includes the heads of state. So I think the heads of state in the Council have gradually approved more European uh, you know, level legislation because they've noticed that it was inefficient or not working well if they kept that competence more at national level. So I think only by starting to have electricity markets and gradually seeing the benefit of doing things more at European level, the, the you know, the national politics were just willing to hand it over more, you know, at the uh -huh. European level. So they because were we, to... we had evidence showing it was simply best for everyone, you know? Yes, yes, yes. So they could see that just this competition wasn't just a, well, I'll, I'll put it in the framework of, of my, my area of a neoliberal project or something, but actually competition actually delivered lower prices, maybe new 
new energy sources, new generation type. So it was it was making it was changing in a positive direction the the energy market. I, I sometimes say we did everything the right way and to my feeling the right way in this sector is often to do it more at European level after trying everything else, right? So it's not that everybody agreed from the beginning, let's do it this way. You know, uh-huh. we, we really tried everything else also, okay, okay, <laughs> which like, is why maybe it was such a long process, no? But I think yes. it was also necessary to have this process to to convince everyone which is the direction to take and, and you know. Uh-huh. And tying into the clean energy package, do you do you think uh, this has really launched or in, in is working to launch a much more innovative energy sector? Uh, yeah, I'll leave it like yes. that. Yes, yes, uh-huh. yes, definitely. Because um, from 2015, all of a sudden, the Commission in their public consultation preparing the clean energy package started to talk about a new deal for energy consumers and you know as always you are maybe somewhat skeptical when you hear that for the first time like that sounds good but how are you actually going to you know express that new deal you know what is really going to change and i have been surprised of what that new deal became and i believe that it has a huge potential to really change things at you know closer to us households um uh, the How average so? household is not yet aware of it, of what is coming in the new opportunities we have, but I really believe they are significant. Um, are these just like uh, smart smart meters or does it actually go beyond beyond that? No, it has to go beyond. If it's just yeah. a meter, uh, that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but that used to be really sexy, right? In the past, yeah, yeah. everyone was like, wow, a smart meter. But uh, that's more if you are an engineer, right? The ultimate ultimate engineering uh, dream. Uh, but I guess the average consumer is not necessarily, you know, just wanting to have the devices. But no, new concepts that are part of that clean energy package is uh, like citizen energy communities, mm-hmm. uh, renewable energy communities, which I think are really nice concepts. Because so far, I you know, and I think that was the recognition also of the clean energy package that so far, um, the benefits have maybe been too much for the few people that are more organized and mm-hmm. that have PV panels on the roof and that maybe have, you know, also simply have the space to do all these things. Yes. Um, uh, you know, and the, the others were just still paying a bill and that's it, right? Yes. So nothing yes. changed. And But now through this concept of these communities, I think there is more possibility of collective action, doing mm-hmm. things together. And then I think the benefits will really to many more people um, so so it's fostering a ground up approach to the energy system yes indeed and it has always existed but it was more you know in certain countries certain you know these kind of cooperatives existed already yes. but they have been mainstreamed through european legislation and they have really been given a, a you know a legal framework in which they can operate uh, which is amazing uh, and so it's, it's it. regardless of the member state uh, how they operate. They have a right to operate and to create collectives, basically. Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. So it has, yeah, every country has to have a legal framework. And there is, of course, still some room to change the details at national level, but at least there will be a framework. Okay. And yes. as always happens that, you know, in the next phase, maybe there will be a bit more harmonization, but at least it's starting, right? Yes. To have yes. something. And, and was this done because, yeah, only a few benefited or large consumers could, could be seen to be benefiting directly from lower prices or greater wholesale competition. And so is this a, a means for the, we'll just say the commission to, to, or even the parliament to address connecting with, with average people? Yeah, indeed, because when the clean energy package was being negotiated is when we had all the yellow vest uh, type of movements, right? Yes. So you had the two extremes going on. You had the school marches, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, fr- uh, Fridays of the Futures type of thing. Exactly, yeah. Greta Thunberg and all the others saying yeah. we have to go faster. But then and you had at the same time the yellow vest movement of people saying, you know, this is going too fast and it doesn't include us. And and I think it has been a compromise between those two movements in trying to let more people take ownership of the energy transition in, instead of just paying the bill, right? Um, yes. Passively. <laughs> yes, yes. And then let, let me connect it kind of with the old way of thinking to maybe 
or not even the old way, but in more engineering perspective, right? Because the energy system is very technical. Yeah, it relies on these rules, regulations, and everything has to be so tightly balanced, as, as you outline uh, in the book and your other research. So how, isn't this just opening up a lot of problems? <laughs> we have yeah. people demanding change and kind of these non-experts getting involved in an area that's highly, highly regulated for very specific engineering reasons. Yeah. Yeah, but I think we've matured to a point where we think both are possible to be combined. And I think the uh, formerly more engineering driven world has also changed enormously mm. um, and are more open to this because over time, I think everything people were skeptical could that could work even the renewables themselves in the beginning when renewables were added to the system, you know, we thought that's not going to work anymore. This is going to be a problem. And, you know, that was not always the case. And in what was sometimes perceived as a problem was then proven to be an opportunity. And I think that's why people in general are a bit more open to give new concepts a chance. Uh <laughs> yes. And, and actually, this is what I like about your book. It, it's... Um... It, it opens this up, I, th I think, the, the electricity markets and understanding it and, and how you write about it, actually, in, in a very, um, not general sense, uh, but, but in an easier, accessible way, actually. And this is why I want to use it in my class, because it's, it's people that are not experts and not engineers can read your book and understand uh, the changes in the key, say, institutions and the key areas of, of the the e where the, we'll say the European electricity market. Then is that what you're thinking? Why why did you want to write the book and what purpose well, did it serve? That was definitely one of my objectives. So you know, if you if you see that, that's a big compliment because I really tried to do that. I didn't shy away from the jargon. Yeah. All the jargon is in the book, but I deliberately try to make it understandable and write in a no-nonsense no way, you know, basically teaching you the language in a way. You know, if you want to be part of the debate, here is what you have to know to be able to be part of the conversation. Because yes. I am a big believer that we need a more inclusive process where more people are involved in these very technical debates. Because what looks very technical is the future of electricity markets where everybody should be involved. Um, so, yes. I, and there was really a need for that. I didn't find any, you know, <laughs> it's really difficult to find some something that is written in that way, I think. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I give, I won't say who, but some, some readings on energy law, and I actually have to cross out whole sections for my students not to read because there's, there's too much jargon. Uh, mm. and, and so I, I give them these texts because I think overall the, the, there's a limited amount of text that go into detail, but are able to explain it to like those people not majoring in, in that area. And this is where I think your book does, does quite well then. Mm. And, and one of the areas you get into, for example, is, is TSOs. Um, and this is quite key, actually, when we talk about electricity markets. I was just wondering, uh, for one of the questions that we have here is, you know, what is the role of TSOs and why are they so important? Yeah, so we talked about the fact that we started with a sector uh, where you had vertically integrated utilities. So we didn't really know that to deliver electricity in our homes, you actually had different functions being performed, namely production of electricity, then the transport. And then that's very weird about this sector that we don't talk about transport, we talk about transmission and distribution. Distribution suggests the delivery, but it's not true. It's just the transport at lower voltages than the transmission. So I always say it's the highway, electricity highways and the local uh, roads, like right? It. And then, and then you have the supply um, of electricity in our home. Um, and these TSOs are doing the highways system. So they are taking care of the transportation of electricity, but not all of it, only part of it. The international transport, because only the highways are international. But in addition to that, because if it would only be that, you know, they transport, okay, fine. Um, and you pay them for these transportation services and they are monopolies. So that payment has to be regulated. <laughs> but on top of it, they play a quite uh, important role in the market. And that's maybe weird about electricity markets. Um, that you need a kind of uh, entity, and that's why we call them transmission system operators, 
because they in you know they're not just a transport company they are operators and the operator part is the the special part because you have people trading and at the end of the trading somebody has to guarantee that you know the system doesn't collapse because everyone trading is trying to do their best but if a power plant doesn't deliver what they promised and a consumer consumes more than the retailer anticipates somebody has to keep the system in balance every minute second uh, of the day because if it's not balanced it can collapse yes and that's what the tso's do so they they monitor in real time if all the market parties commit to what they're promised and if they don't they you know balance it out and also have contracts in place to do the balancing and to make sure everyone sort of you know keeps in line <laughs> and and this is this is one of the key areas right that's been developed so much over the past I don't know, 10 20 years is this at an eu level basically is how these transmission system operators work and the different types of markets uh, that they have for electricity traders. Uh, could you could you maybe explain a bit of that, like day ahead and? Um, yeah, yeah. So um, typically, um, uh, if you have a retailer who has a portfolio of customers, the customers do not have a contract that says exactly how much they will consume. So the retailer has to guess, right? They just guess how much we will consume. And then, of course, they have to buy it or they produce it themselves, but it can also be to buy it wholesale, right? At a higher level. Um, and then <laughs> what happens is they, they will buy some energy, you know, for a full, for several years. And but then our consumption is changing seasonally or monthly because of you know all kind of weather conditions that impact our consumption. And then when we get closer, um, you know, like one day before deliveries, when spot markets are organized, so everyone has some contracts in place, but they have to fine tune their portfolio. Right, one party has bought too much, so they they actually have something to sell. Someone else didn't buy enough, has something to buy. And then all these small, um, you know, volumes are, are exchanged in a power exchange that determines an hourly price for electricity for the next day. And yeah. that's fascinating. Nobody knows that, right? That we pay a fixed price at home, but behind it is a system with hourly and now even half hourly and quarterly prices that are fluctuating all the time, uh, depending on shortages or excess of, of electricity. But how, how can this system be more efficient than just a monopoly in place that can control everything? Why, why is, why is a, a freer market more efficient? Well, I think there is two aspects to it. No, there is the short term optimization. Can a monopoly do that better or a market? And then there is the dynamic aspect of it. So the innovation element. So even if the monopoly would be able to optimize, plan the existing resources better, maybe the monopoly won't necessarily take the right uh, decisions to invest in one or the other technology. So I think competition has proven to be, in energy at least, has proven to be very good in challenging the skepticism of the monopoly. I think a lot of the new technologies and solutions we see today were brought to the market, not by the former monopolies, but by the new players, because they believed more in the possibility of, of, of new uh, technology. Um, uh, you know, and then the monopolies often followed in a way. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> or they, even acquired the, these new players. Uh, yeah, right. And so, so this is the benefit that competition has, uh, is that yeah. newer players can come into the market, but, but the regulation has to be in place, right? To, to open up the system to them. Yeah. So in electricity, you have this thing that is a bit counterintuitive, right? The classical view of regulation was you need less regulation to allow competition. In electricity, we have seen year by year that we had to introduce additional regulation to enable competition. Additional competition. Yes. It is always funny that the regulation we had in place was allowing some form of competition, but then you had somebody new that want to enter the market, but the regulation didn't allow it. So we had have additional rules to create a space for these new players um, to enter, basically. Uh -huh. So the term deregulation is pretty off when it comes to fostering At competition. 
at least for electricity markets. <laughs> okay, okay, yes, 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 yes. Um, and maybe uh, we could move into the role that Acer plays. So we talked about TSOs, and now we have the Agency for Cooperation of Energy Regulators. Uh, what what is the the role that they play in in the EU? Well, we already discussed that uh, the national politicians realized that you know if we give more competence to the European level, that you know in it is beneficial for all of us, right? So that idea gradually um, uh, matured, you could say. But then the same applies to regulators because. The, the origin of regulators is actually to have someone independent of national politics take certain decisions, right? That we think is better not to have political decisions, but more a technical body deciding on these things, like um, the price you should pay to use the network, which is mm -hmm. still a monopoly. So the monopoly needs to be regulated. And we said it's better to have a regulatory agency do that than the national politics. But if you move more and more of the decisions to the European level, you also need the equivalent of a national regulator at the European yes. level. But institutionally, this is quite um, a big thing, right, for Europe to have a, re a full-fledged regulator. So Acer is a kind of a compromise, you could say, between having a regulator at European level, but still having enough um, checks and balances with even a board where the national regulators are represented in the in the European regulator. But the whole idea is simply to have regulatory decisions taken more harmonized with more cooperation at European level. Uh, and then this process of, we could say, Europeanization of, of the electricity market um, and even get we're avoiding gas markets. But so we'll just say... Uh, uh, focus on electricity markets. Um, it's enough to, um, I don't know, keep in check market abuse or infringement by both private players, public players, and even national governments themselves. Does Acer fulfill this role enough, or what's what's your view on that? I'm not really an expert, so I know there is a so like a remit and all these kind yeah. of, um, and it's a, indeed a big task of Acer. But in my book, I don't really cover that topic in detail because I've never really worked on it. The only thing I can say with you know not about the technicalities of market supervision, but just yeah. the whole setup. I think in the first ten years of liberalization, we were really worried about the dominant role that many of the utilities still had. But today, competition reached such a level where the, many of the utilities are even almost going bankrupt or having to restructure yes. that this is, I would say, less of a concern than it was in the beginning of the liberalization, right? Um, yes. But of course, it's still a concern because, you know, abuse comes also uh, in very technical, small things of the market. So it, it continues to be a concern, um, but it's not really my area of expertise, I would say. Okay, okay. And um, one other area that um, you, you bring in uh, is in the integration of the network is the Norwegian Pearl as an example of a story of an event that happened. I was wondering if you, you could relate that story. Yeah, that's a, a funny story. So it's, it's a, it was a cruise ship that was under construction uh, in Germany. And to go into sea had to go through a, a river where there was a transmission line that would come too close to the ship. Um, so they had to open the transmission line for the ship to go uh, to sea. And normally this is a normal procedure because in an electricity network, opening one line is normally, you know, not a problem because there is a, quite some redundancy in the system. Um, because you can even lose a line due to a lightning or whatever, right? So you need some redundancy. But at that instance, for some reason, there was not enough redundancy in the system. And it was not fully anticipated, um, you know, because they did forecast, they ran simulations. So, there, you know, something went wrong. Um, and, the, and it led to a cascading. So some other lines got overloaded and to protect these other lines, they were disconnected. And then it resulted in Europe being reduced electrically into a number of islands. And within each of these islands, they had to balance the system because there was a big imbalance. And, to, and if the imbalance becomes too big, the only solution that you can do to save the whole system to go in blackout is to disconnect consumers 
which we call load shedding, which yeah. literally means putting a few villages out of electricity. Um, you know, and there is even a plan for that. Who should go first? Mm-hmm. And and that happened. So that was quite dramatic, right? That this just one cruise ship, one line led to this cascading. You know, it could have been even worse because a full blackout was just prevented. Um, yes, but it's these types of events that happen that also create reform. Would would you say that? And what was the reform that came came from this? Well, up to that moment, I think there were kind of gentlemen agreements among TSOs to technically collaborate, but that was not maybe something that the average person was really aware of and politicians were aware of. But then it turned out that all these procedures, all this cooperation could be formalized a bit more. Okay, <laughs> just yes. also just, yes exactly um to 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 move a bit more um and and also to to frame that a bit more at european level um and i i think that there is such a technical topic that you almost need a crisis to demonstrate why it is so important to do that right yeah um and and yeah when something like that receives a lot of attention then all of a sudden i think very technical files can move ahead more faster but it's also an interesting i guess example of when things are not formalized so there's this informal way of doing things that has developed over over the years because things were not put in place in a more formal way mm-hmm. yeah that, that's my comment but um uh but maybe maybe it was not fully informal but more bilateral right and mm-hmm. not fully coordinated right there is there is a lot of gray area between full formal and informal <laughs> yes 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 but I, I i just know from the electricity system in eastern europe there used to be a, a central system for that in i think prague it was in the czech republic someplace uh and and they had the whole system coordinated in in communist times and and it worked and so they always kind of just re, re, when i interview people here they always refer back to that system that that actually it worked quite well that this exchange between countries and it was highly developed uh the interconnectors between countries I and mean, there's such uh, large nuclear power plants and they can move the uh, uh the electricity around and it was only after everything fell apart and then they started building e- up for the EU membership that they kind of instituted these barriers basically between between countries and then closed down what there, was their regional uh, center for, for cooperation mm-hmm. then. So uh, for, for Eastern Europe, it, they, they always like to point out that they were doing this before the rest of Europe. So mm-hmm. um, I was wondering if we could move maybe to the role of, of, of courts and the judiciary judiciary in, in the electricity markets. And why, why is this important? So we have the regulators, uh, we have the TSOs, but, but why, why is the court important for the electricity market? Well, I, I guess it's not that different from other sectors in the sense that if you have legislation, there is always some room for interpretation. And then ultimately, you know, if that is the case, somebody might take something to court and then the court rules. And then from then on, we actually know <laughs> what the legislation means when it is not fully clear, right? <laughs> yes. And and one example was that in the early pieces of legislation, it was already said um, that the you know the the capacity that is available the network capacity that is available on borders should be you know more available to the market right yes not surprisingly yes. but we had historical contracts in place that predated the liberalization uh, and I think in principle countries could get an exception for keeping these contracts in place, but they had to apply for that exception. And then they didn't always do that. So it was a kind of thing waiting to happen. And then one country in the Netherlands, there were a few actors that challenged these historical contracts in court. And the court, you know, not surprisingly confirmed (laughs) that these contracts were not really in line with the new uh, market rules. And then they all of a sudden got abolished in the whole of Europe, which had a huge impact on additional competition between countries um, with just one court decision. Um, Another example of an event maybe that that changes how how things are gone, because it was these bilateral contracts that were in place that were essentially keeping out competitors because it was these older relationships that were established. 
Yeah, and I mean, they predated the liberalization, so they were not made with the intent to keep competitors out, but that's what they did unintentionally, you know, some years later, um, until yes. somebody challenges it, right, in court. <laughs> yes, yes. And then um, maybe moving on a little bit to, to the, yeah, so we have greater competition. What about household consumers, though? I mean, this kind of gets back to the earlier discussion with the clean energy package, but how how are we going to see uh are people going to be able to invest more in energy efficiency or we're going to have more solar panels on our homes what, what what's the connection or even just choose better who who our supplier is which not all countries or not all consumers in different countries can choose their supplier still yeah so i i always like to say that we used to talk about consumers among engineers it they were mentioned as load, load of the system. <laughs> so uh, so that's where we come from, right? So they were load. In, in many academic papers of engineering, they are still referred to as load. Then <laughs> we started to see them as consumers. So that's already an upgrade. <laughs> then instead of being a consumer, they were considered as a customer that actually had a choice <laughs> yes, from yes. where to consume. Then, as you said, we, we are, some of us have the privilege of being a prosumer because you have a PV panel on your roof but that's only the beginning of it um i think what is really exciting but that i already said this community element but maybe also what is coming with the green deal you know the new um, ambition we have in europe to be climate neutral by 2050 if you look at most of the scenarios it implies a a bit more electrification in Mm -hmm. certain sectors like heating so if at home you we will replace maybe some of our gas heating by electric heating, it means that there is a new type of uh, customer in an electricity market, right? Yes. And the same applies to our vehicles. If we would switch at least partly to electric vehicles, then you have a much more bigger and more flexible, uh, you know, number of assets at home. So. Today, maybe we don't bother that much about managing our electricity smartly, but if you add a heat pump to it and add an electric vehicle, you start to have much more things to play with um, as an individual, but also as a community. And you also see that as a consequence of this, there are new players looking at electricity. You know, one example is companies like Tesla asking to be a, a you know to get a generation license in in the UK to be able to play with the batteries of your car as if they are a generator in the electricity market. I mean, this is amazing, not that this kind of evolution is happening. um, So they become like a virtual power plant, I guess. Exactly, exactly, Uh exactly. uh So you can, mm -hmm. yeah, you would have virtual power plant of electric water boilers, of of electric batteries, of, you know, it's really, uh, and Again, this kind of evolution is what is challenging the market rules today of electricity. Uh, so we again have to revisit everything we have. <laughs> but so, so there's two parts of my question here. But is the reason you wrote about the electricity market instead of the gas market because maybe the electricity market is the most dynamic for the future rather than even the gas market? Well, the gas market is today becoming more dynamic. But the dynamism of the electricity market, I think, is already, you know, uh, taking place a bit longer. Um, Gas is today, because today gas, to live up to this uh, zero carbon ambition in 2050, is also thinking about how to evolve towards green gas. Um, And some of the green gas will also be more decentralized, like biomethane, um, Mm -hmm. which can be related to agricultural activities that are local also. So I expect to see a similar evolution by greening the gas system. We will also decentralize it and we will start to ask more, how can we have a more inclusive gas system with more participation of consumers uh, and Mm -hmm. customers uh, and citizens? Is there, is there going to be like a, a split then maybe, maybe in the agricultural areas where there's many more farms and just uh, biomass being produced that that becomes much more that stays even uh, kind of on the gas side. But people that living in cities or towns, they become much more, they become larger consumers and producers of electricity. 
Yeah, I do not know uh, what is nice, <laughs> and and I'm I happy I'm happy I do not know because that's why I want to stay in this uh, sector to see how <laughs> yes. it will evolve. <laughs> no, okay, that's me too, right? So we have jobs <laughs> for the future. Yes, <laughs> yes, and and um, but this electrification, then I mean, this bring, brings me back then to to pushing a bit more on the the role that it's not just consumers; it's the the term that is prosumers. Uh, but but it's going to foster a lot of change in how we think about what we do with electricity rather than, you know, not even just having a smart meter. It's still a meter and we just consume it. Everything's kind of pushed out. But the things that we buy and the things that we put on our home, um, I'm speaking, we'll talk about energy poverty in a second. So there's probably a whole another dynamic to this. But But just generally speaking, um, how how we we are as consumers is going to we need to start thinking differently about it. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what's coming? Yeah, but I I'm not I don't think all of us should because ah. there will be a lot of players that will do it for us. So we could just fully outsource it. Like I really don't want to be bothered with this, and you give it to new players that will do it on our behalf. Um, and you start to see that type of players that protect you from all the complexity, you know? Yes. And I think that's also very, very necessary because I, you don't want everybody, every household to read my book, no? I, I mean... <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but uh, I think there's an example for this. Texas, I don't know how closely you followed the, the impact yeah, yeah. of the winter storm, yeah. but, you know, there was consumers that were doing like real-time pricing, like householders, and then they ended up with tens of thousand dollar bills that they had to pay because there was no buffer there. Yeah. And I learned that some players created the buffer because they didn't want customers to lose trust uh-huh. in this kind of new innovative scheme. And they realized that there should have been maybe in the contract, like an exception to say, we expose you to dynamic prices, but not this kind of, emergency situation yes. prices right yes so i think the learning point there is not that dynamic prices are not good but that the implementation of it probably needs a bit of oversight yes. right this but it comes back to the point this will never be an unregulated sector it just yes. needs more regulation the more we make it dynamic yes and We've seen some of that in Europe. Uh, Berk, the, the consumer association organization at European level, once did a screening of the new innovative players that, in my view, were all the, the, the really nice ones, right? Not okay. the former monopolies that you would expect they would have, you know, they need oversight. So th- even the new players unintentionally had several, you know, red flags in their contracts and the consumer association made them public and many of these companies they were not even intending to do so and they changed their contracts okay, so okay. it just shows how innovation you know also creates new issues that we will then gradually solve uh, you know? yeah, yeah but but it, it's this interaction of consumer groups consumer rights groups with the regulators with with everyone working together now rather exactly. than just the engineers planning the system for the next 20 years Exactly, exactly, exactly. So the conversation is only becoming more interesting. Yes. And then I, I want to expand it, and, and I'm not sh- so sure it's in your book, but I at least want to address it a bit. It's about maybe consumers, low-income c- consumers that generally don't follow these things or don't have the resources to follow mm-hmm. this. Is this another area where other parties can get involved to, to assist homeowners that, that are living in energy poverty or low-income yeah, so- households? I think most countries try to address poverty in general, but many countries also have something specific related to energy poverty, and that will stay. Um, You see even an attempt at European level to frame it at European level to maybe also have more uh, clear definitions of what is poverty so that measures for energy poverty are not abused in a way, you know, that has nothing to do with managing poverty. Yes, yes, <laughs> um, yes. You know, that the money actually is used uh, for where it is most needed. Um, and I think a lot of these community collective action also have a strong social motivation. Many of the people part of this kind of community initiatives, they are not in it for the profit. They are really in it to do something with the community where People that can contribute more contribute more, and the ones that are you know um, you know less privileged can still be part of the initiative 
um, without maybe doing all the financing or, you know? So, um, I think we've just had a really good conversation because we went through kind of outlining how dynamic the, the sector is, the electricity sector is, and maybe how undynamic it was somewhat in the past. But, but when we talked about the clean energy package and third package, uh, yeah, we talked about different actors, but I think now we can really see how dynamic and who's getting involved uh, on the consumer side and, and how, how we're going to redo things. And, and maybe, maybe to, to, to conclude a few things, one would be collectives, but, but, um, this would be even like to produce, uh, uh let me, like electric, uh, solar electricity, wind power. These types of collectives are not just, uh, working with people, but, but taking their money and putting it together and building out projects. Is that, is that right? Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, which I think is um, is a really nice innovation, and I had so these players were already there, but I think I was not even aware of it as an energy expert. So I only got the pleasure to get to know some of these communities uh, a few years ago, and I've been amazed of how much innovation is taking place in in these communities. Yes, yes. Uh, just looking at energy poverty and working with some of my students, this is how I've yeah become because I I guess. Uh, I don't know. Uh, looking at the top down, uh, it's still this, yeah, the role of the, the government and different institutions. And then w at least I am surprised, right, by these consumer groups or people, you know, like NGOs, yeah, getting involved and really trying to make sure people don't lose access to their electricity and the bills are paid. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really nice. So I'm, I'm really happy that the EU is opening up an avenue for, to recognize mm -hmm. and to assist at, at this local level. Uh, mm -hmm. My final question uh, for you then, Leonardo, is is how 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 do you go about teaching this topic of of electricity markets? Uh, mm -hmm. Is it is it a uh, it's always a challenge? But are there some key kind of areas that uh, you hit on to to explain how electricity markets work? Yeah, I always start from the controversies we had because I want people to feel that we did not really know exactly how to do it until we tried. So I put them back in time and I, you know, I, I say, if you have the choice on organizing a balancing market in A, B or C, what would you choose? And often they choose exactly for what we thought was actually the best way to do it, but it turned out not to be. Ah. So I bring them along in this uh, evolution, let's say. I, I don't want people to get the feeling that we know we knew exactly what we were doing. Yes. I, you know, I want to let them feel the same passion because then you can look at the issues of today and you can say, look, if in the past we were also struggling with issues that to you don't seem obvious, but we know by now the same applies to all the new issues, right? Let's keep an open mind um, on how we will address those in the future. Yes. And we're always learning. I mean, literally exactly. always, everyone in the whole sector is always learning what, what, looking at what's working, what's not working. And then maybe this is why there's so many different packages. And I'm glad we're, there's not a fourth package or is there that I don't know about. It's just EU clean energy package. That's the fourth. Yeah. Indeed. That's the fourth. That's the fourth. <laughs> and then a fifth, but we won't go there yet. So, okay. Leonardo, thank you very much for, for making the time for this interview. And thank you for publishing this book. Actually, I think it's really needed. And it's open access, so everyone can get a free uh, digital copy. <laughs> That's great. In fact, yeah, we'll we'll put a link uh, in in the notes. So this this is perfect. Uh, and I think I already sent it to the library at my university. So mm -hmm. this is good. Okay, Leonardo, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the My Energy Twenty Fifty podcast. Please follow the My Energy 2050 podcast on iTunes or Stitcher so that you can automatically get updated with each new episode. If you like this episode and feel others can benefit from the information, please share it on social media. You can contact me to provide feedback or suggestions on Twitter at MyEnergy2050 or on LinkedIn. 